Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. I think we've given everybody a few minutes to trickle in. So let's go ahead and kick this off. We'll open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this beautiful day, for the mystery of life and love. We ask you to be with us and calm our hearts and minds. Calm us from the seasons swirling around us, from those things we have on our to-do lists, errands we know we have to run and work we know we have to do. Help us put all of that down for the next hour. Make space inside us for your spirit. Fill us up so that we may be remade and transformed in your image to love those in your world whom you already love so much. This morning, we pray especially for friends that we have lost, including Tom Wittenbreaker and Bobby Kohler. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a quick note, we are a large group And so it's difficult for us, especially because we don't have a good space in this church, which, like I said before, we're going to fix soon. Um, But until we have a better space in this church, we have to sit in pews, which undermines the kind of way that we can relate to each other, right? I wish we could turn and talk in groups of four, or we could break out and have little discussions and kind of get to know one another. So short of that... I want to invite you all to send me prayer requests for this group specifically. So if you've got some, whether they're for you or for your family or for friends or you name it, I'd love to have those each week. You should have communication cards in the pew backs in front of you. Do you? I love it. Not here and stole them all. Um, So if you don't have communications cards, then we'll have some on the tables around the church for you to drop those. But on your way out, there are tables in in both main doors of the chapel where you can just leave prayer requests. You can just leave those cards right on the table. These cards can be used for both prayer requests for this group specifically. If you want a prayer request to go to the church's main prayer list, then just make a note on the card. But otherwise, we'll receive these as prayers we can say together on Wednesday mornings just for this group. And hopefully we can kind of engage each other with a little more depth than we can just with a lecture of a Bible study. Also, these are four questions. And I got a question last week, and I'm so excited. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But as you have questions, please do submit them on these cards, and it'll give us a chance to answer them the following weeks. Obviously, you can ask them in real time, but I know many people don't like to do that. And so if you don't like to do that, please throw your questions on these cards, and we'll get back with you. So question from last week. When the apostles were named in chapter 6, where's Luke and Mark? Why would they not name those kinds of apostles? Luke, Mark, is particularly Luke because we are reading Luke. Why would he not name himself? That's a really great question because it gives me a chance to kind of define one of those ideas that is just difficult because we're never really taught this stuff. One of the things that we can assume and it's a good assumption, although it's not correct. It's a good assumption that the people who wrote the Gospels were the apostles who actually learned from Jesus. That makes total sense. 
And in some ways, like with John or Mark, they are actually named apostles. So it, it links, it makes sense. But the people who wrote these gospels, we call them the evangelists. We don't call them the apostles because they were second generation followers of Jesus, right? If we remember just our easy little timeline, the first books in our New Testament that were written chronologically after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection were Paul's letters. Even though the gospels come first in order in the Bible, they were actually some of the last ones written chronologically or historically. And so the people who wrote the gospels wrote them as students of Jesus's apostles. So I'll say that in a different way. Jesus had the people who learned from him. And when Jesus resurrected and ascended, they had to go out and start telling people about Jesus. As they gathered students themselves, our evangelists are part of that circle, right? So they learned from the people who learned directly from Jesus. They told the stories, the gospels that we have, based on the firsthand accounts they were taught by their own teachers. Does that make sense? All right. And one of the reasons why the gospels we have in the Bible are secondhand, so to speak, is because there was this sense of immediacy about Jesus's return, especially if you read Mark. But you get this in Paul's letters some as well. There's this sense that Jesus ascended and he will return, not thousands of years in the future, but like any time, right? And so we've got who knows how little time to share this good news. So there was this immediacy about needing to tell people about Jesus, get them into the fold, get them following this good news because Jesus could come back at any point. When that first generation started to die, their followers began to say, huh, maybe Jesus didn't come back like tomorrow. Maybe it's more metaphorical or in the future at some point. We should write this stuff down. And then they started to write the stories down. Up until that point, why write it down, right? You're not passing it along. The world's going to sort of come to its rightful, righteous end any moment. So don't worry about writing it down. Just tell people and keep telling more people. It was only when that first generation started to die that they thought, perhaps it's going to be a little while longer. And so we need to write these stories down. So the reason that people like Luke are not mentioned as part of the core apostles is because he wasn't one. He came later. He was a student of those apostles. Good? I love questions. Yes. So that's a very good question. The question is, John in particular, is he writing it as if he were an apostle of Jesus, right? Actually walking with Jesus. The answer is that yes. I mean, th this, is, this is what you might call, you know, in like sitcom lingo, like a single camera story, right? Where there's a person writing this story, right? It's not like four narrators are together. This isn't, you, sometimes you get really good novels where you flip narrators, right? Perspectives as you go through the story. This is not that. They're all writing as if they are walking with Jesus. They didn't say, yeah, it's not as if they said, Jesus once said. They say Jesus said, like they are walking right there and recording these stories, which is why 
we have many of our Christian brothers and sisters who have inherited a tradition in which they think or they interpret, interpret that the Bible is quite literal because it sure does sound like it, but it's not that way. It's a literary technique and it's a very effective one, right? It's much better if I tell you a story in a sermon, I shouldn't admit this, but so <laughs> occasionally, not often, occasionally I will tell a story as if I did it when I didn't do it, but someone else told it and it's just easier for you to hear it if in the first person, right? Most of the time that's not true, but sometimes I think that's a really good story. And rather than saying my friend's cousin's sister did this thing, right? It just, it, it's like every degree you're separated from the actual action of the story, it lessens its effect. So this is what they're doing, right? They're writing this in first person as if they were there because they really want the impact of the story to hit. But the timeline is such that you've got Jesus, you've got Peter and Paul and the other apostles, and then you've got the evangelists. And of the evangelists, remember, you've got Mark, then you've got Matthew and Luke, and then you've got John. John's the last one. So John, more than all of them, it is... It is possible that Mark, Matthew, and Luke could have been alive and actually seen Jesus in real life. Possible. It's more likely Mark, less likely Matthew and Luke, but John, the, the timing is such that it, he would have had to have been exceptionally old when he wrote the gospel, not only just in life, but he would have had to have been exceptionally old when he even wrote the gospel if he actually were alive when Jesus was living. So we can pretty much say, John, it's just not probable that he ever knew Jesus in real life. Now, Mark is the one exception. In the gospel of Mark, in the garden of Gethsemane, there is this weird moment where this naked boy runs out of the garden. It, it's kind of apropos to nothing. But as Jesus is being led away by the, by the guards, there's this naked boy that runs away, wherever he came from. Some people think that that is actually Mark as a boy who then grew up to learn from the apostles and then to write the gospel. Eh, I mean, whatever. It, that's not, it's neither here nor there. It doesn't really matter. Um, but that's the only one where scholars have kind of thought that maybe that's a nod toward one of the evangelists being present with Jesus. All right, let's jump into chapter seven. As you've come to know, Luke's chapters are dense. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. They're long. So we've got four big sections to go through in chapter seven. The first two are sort of related, although they're almost opposites of one another. And so the first two have to do with the centurion and the widow. The third section has to do with John the Baptist from prison. And then the final section is forgiving the sinful woman. Now I'm going to just note, and then I, I'll leave it alone, I won't harp on it, that as a, as a teacher, 
it is frustrating to me to teach stories that name men and don't name women. So I want to like give this woman a name, like forgiving Jane, or, you know, rather than the widow's son, right? It'd be like Beth's son or something. I don't know. You know, I just, I wish they had names. They don't. So sorry. Okay. That's my feminist moment. Okay. We're going to start with Jesus's return to Capernaum to give a little context. So the context here is that Jesus has gone to Capernaum to set up shop, right? We had this experience where he was rejected in Nazareth, his hometown. So he goes up to Galilee, which is kind of northeast of Nazareth, and he sets up shop and he travels and he teaches, and that's where he starts to call his disciples. The people in Capernaum would know him. Right? These are not big cities, right? They're cities in antiquity, but you're talking about many hundreds of people at most, okay? Everybody knows everybody, right? So Jesus would have been known. Jesus from Capernaum would kind of do a small little loop around the area traveling and teaching, but it's still all Galilee. So this story begins as Jesus is sort of coming back home to Capernaum from one of his little jaunts out to heal people and do miracles, right? So as he's coming back into Capernaum, some Jewish leaders meet him. And these are not Jerusalem Jewish leaders, okay? These are Capernaum synagogue leaders. So in essence, they're like the you know, uh, manager of the local 7-Eleven, right? This is not corporate people. These are the ones who are kind of out there, okay? Still good people, but they're not the ones at the core that we might think of when I say Jewish leaders, not them. These are more like the local people. And they come to meet Jesus out on the road and they say, there's a centurion here in town and we have to presume Jesus knows this guy, right? Because this is a small town. And he's a good guy. The centurion is not the normal kind of Roman who is disrespectful and ugly and mean. He really likes us. He's even done good things for the community like he built the synagogue, right? So it's a good guy, but he's also not a Jew. But he's got a servant who he loves, and the servant is sick. And so would you please help him? Like he deserves your help is in essence what they say. And Jesus thinks, okay, you know, sure, he's a nice guy. So he's on his way from the road to the centurion's house when the centurion sends one of his servants to Jesus and says, stop, I am not worthy for you to come to my house, but I know you. And I know if you wanna do something, all you've gotta do is say it and it'll be done. And so Jesus is amazed by the centurion's faith and so heals the servant without ever even going to his home. What's interesting about this story is that Jesus is rarely amazed by people. He may say amazing things and people are amazed by him, but there are very few moments in scripture where Jesus is actually amazed at something a person does. This is one of them. This centurion, not a Jew, just a Roman guy who happens to live in Capernaum, but he has somehow connected with Jesus, understands what Jesus, maybe what Jesus is, but in a, in a very fundamental way. And Jesus takes the opportunity to note 
that with all the complexity, sort of the brilliance of the Jewish religious system, it's the Jews who cannot see Jesus for how plain he is. And yet this Roman centurion just gets it. This Roman centurion understands how profound Jesus really is in the most simple way. He gets that if Jesus says for something to happen, it will happen. That's it. There's no theology. There's no legal right or wrong. There's no context, nothing. Jesus speaks, it is done. That kind of faith is what Luke lifts up in this very first section for us to note. Faithfulness is something I think we struggle with. How many of us, when we say our prayers, are confident to say a prayer that simple? Jesus, I don't deserve it, but I know if you want it done, it will be done. Thanks. I mean, just that easy. Most of us probably approach prayer like, hey, I know you're busy, um, you know, and, and you know, uh, this isn't like the biggest deal, but, you know, it would be really nice if maybe you have a little time, you know, like, eh. And that's, that's mostly how we pray, right? And I, I wonder if we might take a second and think about why it is that we sort of do that, right? Why is it that we either don't think that we deserve it, and when I say deserve it, I don't, mean, I don't mean it that way. Why we think God wouldn't care about a small thing for us. And perhaps are we a little afraid that it won't happen? And so if we pray as if our faith says it will happen, and then it doesn't, are we afraid that that somehow will undermine our faith? God has the full capacity to say no to us. That's okay. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. There are multiple times in Scripture, so many, honestly, where we are told by prophets or by Jesus himself, ask. But how many of us actually do? I think sometimes when we are desperate, we probably ask. But in small ways, I bet most of us don't. And so perhaps this section could challenge us a little bit to think about why that is. And maybe we could start. Maybe we could start actually acting out. I don't want to say it's like visualization, but if you imagine a really good friend if you ask them to do something and for some reason they can't, if they're really a good friend, you don't really wonder why they don't. You kind of just trust that they would if they could and they can't, so they won't. Isn't that good enough for God? That if for some reason it's just no right now, it's just no, it doesn't mean we are unloved. It doesn't mean that the ask was somehow wrong. It just simply means no, that's all right. You know, most of us probably don't get told no much. How many of us are, you know, the kind of people that if we go to a shop, we don't get told no? If there's, the customer's always right, right? 
And we have become this consumer style culture such that we almost, if we're not careful, can default to consume, excuse me, to consuming faith. And we don't like to be told no. But God can tell you no, me too. I think God wants us to ask. And that's really what Luke in Jesus is lifting up in this first section. Next, because I think these two go together. We'll do both of these and then we'll do some questions. The second part of this chapter deals with a funeral scene. Jesus is not in Capernaum, but he's nearby. This is a local town, right? It'd be like hopping up to Plano or something like that. Jesus is just out again, right? He's left Capernaum for the day, maybe for a couple days, and he's traveling to a little village near Capernaum called Nain. And here in Nain, he comes upon a funeral procession. Now let's put into context here, how many of you were at Tom's funeral yesterday? It was, I know a few of you because I saw you. It was such a lovely funeral, and I found myself multiple times keeping myself from crying, right? I mean, tearing up. And I sat there thinking, I would like to just go ahead and cry because this is a, it's a sweet moment. But it, in my context, in that service, like I have to be able to speak, right? So I have to kind of hold it in, stiff upper lip. And as I was looking around, that's what a lot of people were doing. You know, it's a funerals today, although they can be very emotional, they're also kind of, we hold it together, right? I mean, there's this sense that we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to hold it together, right? That is not the context in which Jesus is walking into. If any of you have been to sort of an old country funeral, um, so you all know I'm a couple generations removed from Lebanese immigrants, right? And when my grandfather died when I was 21 and I went to the funeral, this was kind of a funeral in the old country, right? And it was black clothes and veils and chairs up front with an open casket. And, you know, I mean, Lord, please, Episcopalians, how often do... How, when is the last time you saw a casket in our church, right? It is so rare, and it is for sure never open, and most of the time, we don't even have ashes, right? We sort of, we've kind of moved to a point where the body is not it, right? Um, it's the spirit, and it's a celebration. We use those words, and we may start sad, but we end high. And I say all the time, the best reason to be an Episcopalian is to be buried in the Episcopal Church. I mean, there are services that I go to in other traditions that are just depressing. I mean, I went to a service of a colleague years ago, and by the end of it, I thought, I might as well throw myself off the roof. I mean, it was, it was just like overwrought, and it was just weeping and gnashing, and it was crazy. That's really what Jesus is walking into here, right? They are mourning, and it is messy, and it is very guttural, and they are wailing. And Jesus walks up and says something to the mother, right? He has compassion on this woman. And he walks over to the buyer, right? The thing carrying the body. Remember, this is Jewish land, okay? 
you can't touch dead bodies or you are unclean for a long time. The people carrying this dead body are almost doing a service for everyone else. They're almost assuming being unclean so nobody else has to be. So Jesus walks up and touches this buyer, which is a huge no-no, and then tells the boy to get up, and he gets up. And the people lose their mind, right? They are in the middle of mourning and weeping, and he raises this boy. Can you just imagine how bananas this scene went when Jesus did this? They probably knew about Jesus, but this is, this is over the top, right? And it's one thing to tell somebody who can't walk that he can walk, right? I mean, that's pretty good. This boy is dead. And Jesus says, get up. And he gets up. And then they do something very interesting. They equate Jesus to the old prophets. The old prophets, really, this links back, right? Again, a literary technique that Luke is using here. This links back to stories from 1 Kings and 2 Kings with Elijah and Elisha. Now, are you all familiar with Elisha? We used to say Elisha so that you knew that you were talking about one or the other. Okay, so of the great prophets in Jewish tradition, Elijah and Elisha are two of them. Elijah is a big, great prophet. And when Elijah goes up into heaven, he transfers his mantle to Elisha. So in essence, Elisha is Elijah's student and receives the mantle of the prophet and then is a prophet himself. And these stories are found in 1 and 2 Kings. And in 1 Kings, Elijah actually revives a widow's son. In 2 Kings, Elisha revives a, another woman's dead son. All right, both dead. Elijah and Elisha both resurrect these dead women's sons. All the Jews mourning this boy would know those stories. And so when Jesus walks up to a widow and resurrects her son, they immediately think of these old stories. And they say, oh my goodness, we have a real prophet among us. As if what Jesus had done up to now had been like minor prophet stuff. There's this moment where more people, right? More and more people. As we go in Luke, it's like the circle is building, right? More and more people begin to understand that Jesus is something beyond a good teacher. He is really a prophet. All right. With those two held in tension, the first being about the centurion's faithfulness, the second being about Jesus's compassion. What we have here in the first half of chapter seven is this kind of dualistic tension between faith and grace. Most Christian theological debate can sort of be reduced down to what do we do and what does God do? And depending on where you land on that spectrum 
God either does a whole lot more than we do, or we do a whole lot more than God does when it comes to salvation, right? We can, in essence, with these first two sections, replace the healing or the resurrection moments as salvation moments for these people, right? They are saved, some literally from being dead. But the salvation is still there. And in the first, Jesus credits the person's faithfulness for receiving the salvation moment. In the second, the real salvation moment comes just from Jesus, right? This widow did nothing. Jesus approaches and acts almost completely independently of anything that she did. And yet both end with this incredible salvation experience for these two people and for everyone around these two people. And so we've got, for Luke, holding up the tension between what would be faithfulness or what we do and grace, just what God does for us. Any questions or thoughts? So the observation question is, you've got Elijah with a widow, Elisha with a widow, Jesus with a widow, and then we know what's going to happen, right? Mary, as a widow, loses her son, Jesus. None of that is an accident, right? Remember that the gospel writers cannot possibly record everything Jesus does. So they act like editors of the stories. This story is put in here on purpose, and it is told very intentionally. So like any good story, have I ever told you what my mother told me once about my preaching? Um, my, I, I called her at one point, this is years ago, and I said, I think you're gonna like the sermon today. I told a story about X, Y, and Z, and she said, it's probably not right. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean it's not right? And she said, well, none of the stories you tell about your childhood are right. I said, yes, they are. I was there. And she said, ha I was too. And she said, <laughs> she's like, they're kind of close, but they're not really right. And I thought for a second, I thought, you know what? I am not a historian. I am a storyteller. And that's really what these gospel writers are. And we have to make sure we kind of keep that in our mind as we do this Bible study. They are storytellers, right? Now, they are talking about historic events but they're telling stories about these historic events. They are not journalists. They are not intending to capture things like a photograph, right? It's more like the portrait that we've talked about. And so they'll tweak the stories in order to make a deeper point. Now, I mean, one question we could ask is, is the widow in the second part of this story actually a widow? Ah, uh, maybe. But by making sure Luke tells the story. Now, this story does not happen in Matthew and Mark, all right? Not like this. By Luke naming this woman as a widow, he is really making sure that the people who read this connect to Elijah and Elisha. That's really the point with this story, right? It's a good story. It's a resurrection story, which has a lot of weight to it, except even better than that, Jesus is now like Elijah and Elisha, right? We've already tracked from the very start Luke's connection to who? 
Adam to Abraham to Moses to David. Now we've got Elijah and Elisha. We are, in essence, Luke is creating this web. Jesus is like all of these greatest hits of God's work in the world and more. And so this is two more prophets that you can check off the list that Jesus is explicitly linked to. That would be my interpretation. I think that there is certainly a valid interpretation that this foreshadows Jesus' own death, right? And that Jesus returns to the widow, her son. God will return to Mary, her son. But it's different, right? There's a resurrection here in this story, and that person will have to die again, right? So the boy died, he'll die again. What happens with Jesus later is not that same story. And so there is further differentiation of Jesus from everyone else, which is part of the development of Christology. We haven't talked much about that in here, but there is, in the first century especially, people are trying to figure out who Jesus really was. Because there are all these stories about Jesus, especially starting with Paul, but going well beyond, where people wondered, is Jesus a teacher? I mean, the answer is yes, but he's obviously more than that. Okay, so is Jesus the Messiah? Yes, but not quite, we're going to see in just a second, not quite what people thought the Messiah would be. And so in what way is Jesus the real Messiah, not who we thought the Messiah would be? And all of those questions begin to be unpacked in the first century, and that is Christology, or the belief about Christ, right? The theological development of not Jesus of Nazareth, but the Christ, right? And so in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you get a lot of Jesus stuff. When you get to John, there is explicit language about Jesus the Christ. Christ is an important concept because that shifts Jesus's identity. Jesus is no longer just a prophet or a great prophet. Jesus is now a savior, like, but cosmically, right? The Messiah was always perceived as a savior figure, but not like the Christ would ultimately be. And that Christological development is what we're witnessing in this kind of story. Luke's working out who actually is Jesus. And so I think that there's a literary technique being used here to separate Jesus from these other great people. He is something unique and different that they're trying to figure out. I saw something, Rosemary. Very good question. So I'll kind of rephrase the question. You are, in this question, you've kind of articulated what they were trying to figure out. Right? It took hundreds of years for them to really answer the question that you're asking. The question is, I'll rephrase it. If many other people, many, if multiple other people are being raised from the dead, then how is Jesus being raised from the dead the unique focus of kind of Christian dogma or theology, right? Is that fair? 
So my answer would be, we as human people like to reduce things as clearly as possible. We like black and white, right and wrong clarity. But I think that the story of Christ, that the whole story of Jesus is like a cosmic rescue mission, right? The whole thing. And we have to take the whole thing at once. In fact, in fact, I write about this in an article for the Archangel in December. Um, there is this sense that Christmas or Easter, so to speak, are, are almost standalone, and they're not. They're really the beginning and the end of one big, great miracle. And I think that that's what we are challenged to hold is the entire story. It's not just the resurrection. It's not just the ascension or the death or the incarnation or all, it's all of it. And that's what is really unique because you're right. We know, I mean, almost any of us could have likely recalled Lazarus, right? I mean, if, if I were to say to you, is there anyone else who rises from the dead in the Bible, right? At least I hope all of us could pull out Lazarus, right? But we, I hope just in this one lecture, you know, there have been many people raised from the dead throughout the entirety of scripture, right? Not just the New Testament, but back in the Old Testament too. So that alone is not unique. Now it's rare, but it's not wholly unique. But the entire story from incarnation to ascension is unique. And that is the great miracle, like capital GM, right? And that's really what we have as the story. It's not any one moment, but it's the whole thing taken together. Is that feel okay? Okay. Any others? So then we, yes. Okay, I think that's fair. Everyone else who is raised from the dead in Scripture, we presume, even though we don't know, but it's obvious, I think, they die again, right? So it's really a saving from that moment, but it's not a saving from death. However, we know with Jesus that he dies, is resurrected, and then ascends, does not die again, and so, like I've said, people had to figure out what in the world is that, right? Because at the beginning of Acts, and, and I've, I've talked about how Luke and Acts, same author, right? It's basically part one, part two of one big story, which is why it's my intention that we're going to do Luke and Acts over two years, right? Because that's the whole story. At, in chapter one of Acts, Jesus is there, and then he's ascended, and all of the disciples are like, what now? And they've got to figure it out. In addition to figuring out just what do we do now, there is all the theology, right? What does it mean that Jesus didn't die again? And that's, a, that's also part of the story, right? It creates the uniqueness. In fact, we're going to get to hold that because we're going to talk about the munus triplex here in number three. I guess I had to throw the Latin out there for you. Okay, so hold that because the identity of Jesus begins to be worked out in a threefold manner. 
And that kind of gets, we're kind of getting there with the third section. So hold it and ask it again if you don't quite like the answer, okay? So in, in the section three of this chapter, we hear from John the Baptist. So John the Baptist has been kind of out of the picture for a couple chapters, but remember he was out there as a prophet, a baptizer, teacher, all that sort of stuff. Well, he has since been arrested and put in prison. But prison at this point in time is not exactly like we think of prison. For some, it really kind of meant house arrest, right? If we think of Paul, when Paul was in prison, Paul was mostly just had to live at home. I mean, it, really, it's more like house arrest. That's, that's a downer, right? I mean, you can't go out, you can't see friends, you can't, but it's also not, you know, in chains kind of thing like we might naturally think. This could be similar. John the Baptist was probably not at home. He's not at house arrest because he had no home, right? He was the crazy person out in the wilderness. But he was brought somewhere and could still do things like he could eat, right? He could probably read. He could obviously see his followers. They could come and talk to him because he sends them to Jesus. So all the while John is in prison, he's likely hearing about what his cousin is up to. And at some point, John's probably like, what's going on? You know, because John is like all the other Jews who expect that the Messiah is going to be a new king, that the Messiah is going to save them, not in some, you know, highfalutin theological way, but in like actual reality. Like the Romans are in charge and they oppress the Jews and the Messiah will throw them out. And Jesus is not doing that. And so John, just being human, says, would you go ask Jesus, is he actually the person I was talking about? Because I kind of thought so, right? And I preached a lot about it, and he came down, and he was baptized and everything, but nothing has come of what I expected. And so John's messengers, John's own disciples, show up and say to Jesus, John's wondering, right, are you actually he? And so Jesus has this great exchange where he, in essence, doesn't answer, I mean, is the bottom line. He doesn't actually give an answer. What he does instead is he says, there are these two ideas that you're expecting. One would be a king and one would be a prophet. Instead of putting your expectations on me, look at what is happening. And he begins to do a list, right? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Rather than trying to put me in your box, look at what I am doing. That is Jesus' response. And why I wanted to hold off on the answer just a minute ago is because this really gets at what we might be able to articulate as Jesus's identity. In the church, there is this sense, there, there is this idea, theological idea, that Jesus is a triplex, munus triplex. Gotta give you a little bit of Latin, hold on. You may not be able to see this in the back, but sorry.
Munus triplex. If you can't see it, sorry. This idea is a threefold identity prophet, priest, and king. Jesus as the Messiah is not any one of those, he is all three. And we get some of that in this response to John's followers. Jesus is not the prophetic Elijah, right? Jesus is also not the king like Herod, and he is certainly not the priests like in the temple. What he really is, is what all three of them put together. He transcends whatever kind of boundaries that the people of the time would put around him. In that way, his messiahship is very much expanded from anything anyone had expected that it would be. That, this idea, the triplex idea is, I mean, multiple systematic theological lectures, so it's not simple. But does that kind of make sense? John says, who are you? Are you really him? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not who you expected. Look at what's happening. I'm a whole lot more than that. I see two questions. Front first, and then Karen. So, yeah, the, the, the question, how about I say this? This is an idea about Jesus's identity. It is certainly not a complete idea about Jesus's identity. Theology sort of starts from the place of nothing will ever get it totally right, but at least we can get closer than we were with a few different ideas. And so obviously we've got Jesus is God, right? So to reduce Jesus to anything less than just the whole is incorrect. But then you've got this other layer of can we get some functional clarity in a way that we understand? We have never been God, and so it's difficult for us to say, oh yeah, like that, because we don't get it. So it's a reductionist kind of thing to do. So, so long as we know that, then I think it's safe for us to say Jesus functions, functions in ways we can understand, like prophet, priest, and king, all of it. And that's a way to understand Messiah within this new context. It's imperfect, but it is better than what we have otherwise. If you have this idea, thank you. So comment being, listen to some Advent, the words of the Advent hymns, because it does get at this. And it's not even just Advent hymns. If you put in your mind, some of you may not have ever heard this before. If you put in your mind, prophet, priest, and king, you're gonna hear this a lot. I mean, I bet every other Sunday, you will hear some kind of reference whether it's hymnody or in scripture or something, to this triplex idea. And it might kind of surprise you, like, oh my gosh, there it is, right? You've been singing that for years, and boom, prophet, priest, and king. It's very common, and it's a lot of the theology that we use as Anglicans. And if you've never, I mean, I'll admit, I'm one, Karen actually just 
emailed me this morning this great poem. There, some of you have done this where you've said, oh, you know, you said that thing and it made me think of this poem. I wish my mind worked that way. Um, I do appreciate poetry and I cannot for, I don't function that way. And so I love it when people throw th quotes or poems to me because it, my mind just doesn't work that way. Um, I wish it did. But hymns are gorgeous poems. And as you sing in church, do really look at the words. This happens to me, it has, has to happen to me at least monthly, where I'll be singing a hymn that I swear I have sung before. I promise I have. And I'll read a line and I'll think, I have never noticed those words. Do you ever do that with the radio? I can sing, I can act like I'm singing any song on the radio, right? I've just got a memory for lyrics. And I will often sing a song over and over and over. And if you were to ask me what that song's about, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but I can sing all the words. And occasionally I have that bad moment where I have been singing that song and that's not a good song, you know? <laughs> and then when it finally clicks like what the lyrics are, I think, oh, I'm not singing that song anymore. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's, do you, stop, I'm, I'm like, okay. I can get off way off on that. Um, I will not. So, because we have to finish this. So, let's grab the last here. And I, I'm going to, I'm just going to go over time today. Sorry. If you have to leave, leave. I will not be offended. But this last section of chapter seven is one of the best passages in the Bible, period. This section, this story of Jesus going into Simon's house and meeting the sinful woman is as clear a story of God's kingdom as we have. If you ever need to vet something in your life, like what would Jesus do? Or what would God do? Or, or where does God, like what is God's economy kind of in this situation? How do I move forward? This passage is one that should be on your top three to just reread. It is so good. I think I said at the very beginning of this study, Luke is the storyteller. This is an example of an incredibly gorgeous story in just a few sentences that only Luke can do. No other gospel writer can tell this kind of story. And if you haven't read it, here's the gist. Jesus is invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. Now, a quick note. We may hear Pharisee and think, ooh, people who don't like Jesus. But at this point in time, they're not mad at Jesus yet right? Jesus is still this kind of interesting guy, right? He's teaching mostly good stuff. He's obviously doing some good stuff and he's drawing the crowd. So any smart leader would want to kind of bring him in, right? So Simon's probably one of the Pharisees. You know, they got together and they're like, have you heard about this Jesus? Yeah, he's up in Galilee. Well, we should probably get to know him. You're right. And so Simon, why don't you throw a dinner party and invite Jesus and get to know him, right? I mean, it's human, right? We do the same thing. So Simon hosts this party and Jesus is at the party and Simon's doing all the stuff that a host should do, not everything a host should do, that's coming. And at this point in time, you don't have closed, the culture in the Mideast is very fluid. People just show up, 
right? And so this woman probably heard that Jesus was coming. She's obviously a fan. And so she shows up to anoint Jesus's feet. Now, this is a cultural thing, right? It's a dusty place. You don't have pavement. You typically wear open shoes, right? Sandals. And it is a normal thing when you enter a home that you would wash your feet just because your feet are sandy, dusty, dirty, whatever. It's a sign of hospitality that you would wash your feet. And so Jesus comes in, that does not happen. But the woman shows up to anoint his feet. So what would often happen is you clean your feet and then you anoint your feet. It's almost like lotion on dry skin, except back then it would have been water washing the dirt off and then some oil just to kind of soften and moisturize the skin that would be really dry from the day. This woman shows up with oil, but what we can read into the story is she is so overcome in Jesus's presence that she starts crying and she is so boohoo crying that her tears are literally falling on Jesus's still dirty feet, right? Because he didn't get them cleaned when he showed up to the party. And so she's probably thinking like, I cannot believe I'm crying all over his feet. And now his feet is, are wet. I can't anoint his feet because they're wet and they're still dirty. And you know, if you're, you've got like dusty or dirty hands and you like drop on them, then it's like real messy, right? And so the only thing she can do, because she didn't really prepare to clean his feet, is she takes her hair down and she starts to kind of wipe his feet to clean them before she anoints them. And by the time she's done anointing the oil, she is a big hot mess, right? This is, this is a crazy messy scene, right? I mean, we have this image in our mind, maybe at least I do, of this like loving moment. That woman did not show up to clean Jesus' feet with her hair, okay? She did not plan this. This is more of a kind of, you start, you get rolling in a situation and you just, it's like you dig yourself into a deeper hole, right? So you're crying, you're like, why am I crying? But I can't help it and his feet are dirty and I, all you have is your hair, what? And so, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. This scene is nuts. And so this woman is finally anointing Jesus's feet and Simon, who has thrown this great dinner party, is like, what are you doing? I mean, he turns to Jesus and he says, this is so inappropriate. I mean, the, this whole thing has gone off the rails, right? And you need to really kind of get yourself together because you're a rabbi. This woman has put her hair down in public. That is not okay. She's touching you all over the place. And you're really kind of insulting my home. In this moment, Jesus is this calm, poised person. In between Simon, who is this elitist kind of high person who has thrown this dinner party and wants it to be perfect. And this woman who is just a weepy mess. And in the middle is Jesus. And he turns to Simon and he says, look at this woman. I came to your home. You did not offer for my feet to be cleaned. I sat down. You gave me nothing to eat or drink. And this woman who is nobody, comes here and with her own tears and hair, does what you should have done as a proper host. So in one fell swoop, he insults Simon's hospitality or lack thereof, and affirms that this woman has done nothing 
but be kind to him. And then he tells the story. If there is a man who is, has two debtors, one who owes him a little and one who owes him a lot, and he forgives both debts, who would love him more? And Simon, of course, says, well, the person who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, absolutely. You have very little debt because you live this life of affluence and elitism. But this woman knows just how messed up life can be. And her debt is much larger and has still been forgiven. And she shows this by her love. Then he turns to the woman and says, you are forgiven, go in peace. Oh, this story is so good, so good. And it's so short. And in that one little capsule, Luke tells you everything he thinks about God's kingdom. For Luke, true faith is what happens when someone meets Jesus, discovers God's forgiveness, and then the proof of that faith is acts of love. That's it. That is for Luke everything. And that is flies right in the face of the entire Jewish legal system that has been established to make sure that the people act right and in acting right earn God's favor. Luke says, absolutely not. God's grace and love, right? Both of these first two stories in this chapter lead up to this experience with the sinful woman to say, there is faithfulness and grace. And when those two meet, the only thing that comes from the truth of faith and grace is acts of love. What this woman did for Jesus is this true, bare, and authentic act of love. And that, that's all God's looking for. That's it. I know I'm over time. Any final questions or thoughts? If you've got any questions, please put them on the cards. Prayer requests, please put them on the cards. I thank you all very much. Have a good week. <laughs>